welcome back to the popular show with me james a smith if you find the show useful if you like the work that we do it would be great if you could get over to patreon.com forward slash the popular pod and give us a few quid a month in order to help us keep the show running. I'm absolutely delighted to welcome to the popular show Charles Devalens. He is senior lecturer at the University of Kent uh, and the author of several books, most recently this fantastic one, The Macron Regime, The Ideology of the New Rights in France, uh, here to speak to us about French politics. Welcome to the popular show, Charles. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. It's great to great to have you on. Uh, it's it's an interesting day. We've got a bit of carnage going on in France uh, right now. Uh, Macron has invoked Article forty nine three. Is this the the way to say? It? Um, th this is a real sort of coming to um, heads of of a, an, a long running dispute over over pensions in France, which I, I think kind of crystallizes quite a lot of what you were describing in the book. Maybe you can get our listeners up to speed about what's happening in France right now. Yeah, absolutely. So um, today there was the use of this dreaded Article 49.3 of the Constitution, which allows the government, um, so that's the Prime Minister, really, Elisabeth Borne, uh, but really, you know, we say the Prime Minister, but we mean the president, because even though he's not the one using the, the article, he's the one who ordered it in the first place. So to, to allow the government to pass through any law without a vote or debate in parliament, which is quite a draconian measures by any democratic standards. And so it was used today. I was watching it. It's live um, as I had a little bit of free time being on strike. So it was very, very interesting to, um, to see because she was completely drowned out in her announcement in Parliament by uh, members of Parliament from the opposition, most notably from um, La France Insoumise, which is um, Mélenchon's party, uh, singing the Marseillette. And it was quite a sight, not very common in the French National Assembly, it's known to be much more boring than the House of Commons, where there's a lot more confrontation. Uh, and it was quite a sight to, uh, to behold, really, because um, it, was, it was something that I had never seen before in, uh, in parliamentary debate. There's often a little bit of shouting, but this kind of, um, this, this kind of singing to drown out the announcement um, that she was going to use um, this article was, was quite interesting. And of course, they, she did it right at the last minute. So it was a surprise for all political commentators until about a few minutes before, before the vote. The government thought it had the votes and at the last minute decided it was too close to call and, um, and so passed the, um, the pensions reform uh, without any vote in, in Parliament. There were some debates, to be fair. There were some debates in the Senate. There were some debates in, uh, in the National Assembly, uh, in, in Commission, but you know, nothing close to what you would expect in a, in, in a country that claims to be the inventor of human rights. How does this pension reform fit in with the wider Macron agenda? I mean, the, the subtitle of your book, the ideology of the new right in France is is controversial in itself, especially internationally. Back into 2017, when Macron got in, he was seen as a sort of saviour for a, a centrism or for a liberalism, not as a right wing figure. And yet this, uh, this struggle over pensions 
um, is is kind of a representative episode in terms of the economic agenda that Macron has pursued. So, so what, what do you mean by uh, Macron's new right uh, and how does this current stuff fit in with it? Yeah, so I call it the new right because it's, uh, it's a new version of the political right in France. Um, it's actually for uh, my British and American audiences, it will be much more familiar as a form of the right because in many ways, it's, um, it's a turning of the French right into a more Anglo-Saxon right, what in France we call Anglo-Saxon. So we mean you know, British and American, basically, all bunched together as, it's, as if it's the same thing. So this new right is, is a neoliberal right. I, I dreaded using the term because I find it um, a little bit too vague. I find that people mean all sorts of different things with it, but I just couldn't describe him, Macron and his ideology and his, his government's ideologies without using the term, it became almost impossible for me to do. So in my, in my previous book on the yellow vest, I, I made it a point to not use the word <laughs> neoliberalism, but I, it was impossible for this one. So I had, to, I had to define it. So this new right is a neoliberal right. So it's, uh, it's closer to, to the kind of Thatcherite or Reaganite right that uh, we've seen in the Anglo-Saxon world. And um, it's, um, it's a fascinating turn for France because France has... Uh, even under the, the old right, so the kind of Gaullist right, uh, following the, um, the, um, uh, the rule of de Gaulle, but also of many others uh, after him, up until basically Jacques Chirac in the early 2000s. Uh, the, under the old right, there was always a little bit of dirigisme, right? So this idea that the economy needs to be stirred, that uh, really the state has to be involved in some areas, negotiations with unions, a little bit of a belief in, in a social state that uh, needs to be protected, um, at least to a, to a certain level, because it was a compromise, right? It's a compromise between um, a, a version of the, uh, of the, um, the pre-war uh, right and uh, the communist threat. So in the, in the, in the post-war era, it made sense to uh, give something to the workers so that they don't turn to the communists, right? And so that's, that Gaullist right was the old right, and now we have a new version of the right. I also say that it's, Macron is the fulfillment of this new right. He's not really the inventor. In many ways, this, this new right comes from both the right and the left of the political spectrum. It comes from people like Sarkozy, of course, but also François Hollande, who came just before, uh, just before Macron. And um, uh, Macron was a minister under Hollande, so uh, he knows him very well, personally and professionally. And, and in many ways, you know, this is a story that, again, will be very familiar to, um, to people in the, um, in the UK and the US, because there's also been uh, a neoliberal wing of, of the left-wing parties in those countries, Labour and the Democratic Party. So under Clinton and, um, and under Blair, of course. So we, we can see that, you know, there's, there's a continuation between those movements. But uh, in France, it, it has acquired <laughs> a, very, a very different meaning because we didn't really have Thatcher before, right? It's not like we had Thatcher, then Blair. We, we, had, um, we, we had it the other way around, actually. We had kind of Hollande and then Macron. And so he's mm. very much the fulfillment of that of that neoliberal right, and it's you know it's what you'd expect from from neoliberalism with, with a little twist because um, I 
when I was when I was researching the book, I, I decided I had to define neoliberalism at least for myself. And um, and what struck me about neoliberalism is that it has completely compared with old liberalism, if you want, it has uh, it has accepted that we need to capture state power. Right? As liberals, the goal is no longer to have a small state, but just to have a small social state. The rest of the yes. state needs to be very big. And, and so, yeah, sorry, <laughs> Macron has done that, basically. Yeah, I, I mean, th this uh, this episode, this of, of uh, the suspension of, of of parliamentary voting and, and debate and, and law by decree, this this kind of tops off a a a, a, um, a presidency or a couple of presidencies where Macron his his style of leadership has been sort of marked by this almost state of emergency logic. You describe how when Macron came in in 2017, France had been in a, a formal state of emergency over terrorism since 2015, something that Macron had criticised. But thereafter, it, it seems like there's there's always been an emergency that has justified that expansion of the security state and that expansion of police power during Macron's time. Uh, maybe you can give a, a bit of a sort of pricey of that story. Yeah, I, if, I don't know if you're a, a fan of Eric Hobsbawm, but um, I, I grew up with some of his work and his, in particular his kind of large uh, historiographies of, of hundreds of years. And, um, you know, so you have the age of capital and the age of revolutions. And, and I think ours is the age of crisis. Yes. So we are constantly going from crisis to crisis. And when you have emergency powers uh, that are in place, then it's very easy to renew them. And that's, that's what happened in France after a terrorist attack in, in late 2015. The, um, the, the emergency powers were introduced and they were still in place when Macron was elected in mid-2017, so a year and a half later. And he had been critical of them and then he passes them into ordinary law. So the state of, of exception becomes permanent. And Agamben has done some work on this, on the state of exception. And so I use, I use him in, in the book to detail a little bit uh, what, what does that mean to live in a society where the state of exception has become permanent? What does that mean to live in, um, in a country where it's, it's um, a regular occurrence that people get maimed or killed in demonstrations? Right. And, and that, has, that has changed because this didn't used to be the case. There were, of course, clashes between demonstrators and the police. So you can think about you know, the sort of the, the large strikes of the 50s as some of the, some of the most notorious elements uh, of that. But even in May 1968 in France, which is, lives in our collective imagination as this moment of great revolt, there were very few fatalities. Um, the the yeah. police repression was quite low. And what we've seen with the yellow vest is a complete reversal of this strategy. So we have, um, we have a police force that in peacetime uses weapons of war in the streets. So these are, um, uh, I, f I forget all the names, but I talk about them a little bit in my yellow vest book. There are three types of grenades that the, the French police and gendarmerie, so the, uh, the military police um, use on, um, during demonstrations. And some of them have, uh, two of them, I think, out of the three, 
have explosives in them. So they have TNT, uh, the same explosive that was used in the kind of iconic World War II uh, pineapple American army grenade. So you can see this sort of pineapple shaped grenade and um, it's uh, in smaller quantities, but not that much smaller, about half the amount of TNT. And so you can see that really what we're doing is we have used laws that were meant for um, a, a state of siege. The, the initial laws during passed during the French Revolution in France were, um, were about the state of siege. So if a city is under siege, what kind of powers the, uh, the, um, um, the public authorities have to restrain uh, the population. And, uh, and really, uh, those have become permanent now. So a lot of those powers are permanent. Um, so they, there's a use of weapons, weapons of war in the streets, but also um, much, much smaller, but not less significant, actually probably more significant for ordinary people, is very wide use of arbitrary powers by state authorities. So the, um, the prefect in France, who is um, an administrative post, so you see they're appointed by the president, they're not mm. elected, um, and um, they have the power to forbid individuals from entering their region, the département. So, and, and they need to justify it very lightly. They just say you are a threat to public order for one reason or another. If you've published a book that has radical ideas, that's probably just about enough. And they can forbid you from entering the département and with no recourse because it's an administrative measure. So unless there's been uh, a vice of procedure, unless the prefect has not followed the procedure for excluding you from, from the département, there is no recourse. The, the decision is final. You cannot contest it in French courts. So it's very worrying to have these widespread powers share um, uh, spreads throughout society. And, and this has happened again under Macron, right? I mean, the prefect existed before him, but he's given prefects additional powers that have been used and are being used against climate activists, yellow vests. And it's only a matter of time that you know, the, the, these are used against um, uh, people that uh, are, you know, like I say, just writing books. Yes. It, it, it seems like it's increasingly part of the function of the so-called liberal leader that they seem to be reversing, at least aesthetically, the excessive measures of their predecessor, but actually just normalize them and formalize them and, and, and make them into to law. And, and that certainly describes Macron, as you describe. Um, COVID was a, another big um, step forward in terms of the, the Macron regime and its authoritarianism. We've covered a lot on this show how it's almost as if the different major Western states sort of took a different area of um, specialization in what kind of aspect of the, the COVID regime they wanted to, to push and see how far they could take. For Britain, it was terrifying propaganda that we um, exported to, to the rest of the world and continue to uh, do so in Eastern Europe over uh, and the Balkans over, um, over Russia and Ukraine. For, for Canada, it was the uh, innovative use of cutting people out of their bank accounts for attending the wrong protests. And for France, um, the, the actual COVID restrictions were, much, were not much different to the rest of Europe, but the use of policing was. Perhaps you could describe that for us. Yeah, so I think you're, you're right in the assessment. The French state reacted pretty much like 
a British state, pretty much like a Dutch or Belgian or Spanish or Italian state, really, um, you know, that, with hindsight, you know, quite excessively, right? And many people even said it at the time. But um, it was... Um, it was very clear that the the only significant difference between the French strategy and the um, and that of its neighbors was the use of police officers to enforce lockdowns. Um, and I'm not talking about you know these few images that uh, we've seen in the UK um, of you know some some police force I forget which one flying drones and, and catching hikers you know when they were walking in national parks. I mean that's that's bad enough as it is, but. Uh, we're talking about the deployment of hundreds of thousands of police officers in the streets to police lockdowns and to enforce bureaucratic measures taken during lockdowns, such as the necessity for um, individuals leaving their house to have a, a form filled in, detailing the reasons why they were leaving their house and what time. And so just to make sure that all the all the proper rules of enforcement were, were in place, there were time limits and and distance limits as to uh, where you could go, like in like in other countries, but the difference was the uh, this widespread uh, use of of security forces basically to to enforce this, and the sheer number of fines that were issued. I don't have a precise number, but it was it was hundreds of thousands of fines issued during that time. Um, some of them had uh, were cancelled actually later um, because they were deemed to be illegal. But um, at the time they were issued, many people paid them. Probably didn't bother getting getting the fine back uh, afterwards. And and that really that use of security forces plays into what I was talking about earlier, which is the neoliberal state building the state. So hmm. when you look at the figures under Macron, he's uh, he's spent a lot more every single year that he's in power. It's six years now. Every single year he's in power, he spent a lot more on uh, on security, in particular uh, internal security, police, and gendarmerie forces. And so the that started way before the repression of the Yellow Vest. The repression of the Yellow Vest was kind of a, um, the first testing ground for this new security policy. And it's continuing to this day. We've heard, you know, uh, Richie Sunak was uh, was in Paris. Um, when was it last week? And um, and you know, there now it will be subsidized by uh, by the British state as well. That uh, will we'll transfer part of this security regime uh, back to France for policing the border um, in Calais. So we see that this um, this is not a this is not new uh, for for Macron. This is part of his strategy. And in the in the book, I make a it's kind of a cheeky little reference, but I call it the Macron regime uh, mm -hmm. because regime in French has two meanings. Right? It's both the regime as we as we use it in English, you know, a kind of a, a political system, um, often used pejoratively. So I also I also had that uh, little critique in uh, in using that term, but it's also the diet. Right? A, a regime is a diet. So if you go on a diet, you, you say je fais un régime. So this um, this regime is also a diet. And I, I, I call it a kind of, um, it's kind of a paleolithic diet, right? So you're, <laughs> you're going to be taking like very, very strong protein supplements and eating only meat. And, and the, the, the point of this analogy is to show that for, for neoliberals, the state needs to be strong. 
because to take away uh, rights and pensions and pay and um, and all this from individuals, you know, they're going to fight back. So you need a very strong repressive arm of the state in order to guarantee that those changes can be pushed through. So the Macron regime is also this high protein diet that turns the state into a very muscular and security driven state that enforces uh, rules. And during lockdown, it was, it was very evident that um, this, this was a particularly French issue, much more than for other, at least European countries. When Macron got in, it, it was possible to see him um, from, from the point of view of the left as a sort of retrograde figure in some way, that he was a, a sort of reheated Blairism or reheated Clintonism um, that, that was a, a sort of last gasp of a, a liberal, neoliberal order that was struggling against both right and left populism, even Macron's admirers sort of saw him as kind of belatedly doing the overdue work of modernization of the French state. So a, a lot of the, the discourse around him saw him as a sort of figure of the past or, or, or e even people who sort of wanted to go back to a, a kind of pre-2016, pre-populist world saw him that way. In increasingly, though, it, it seems like he is a, a figure of the future and a future of how the West is to be governed. Th this awkward sort of tightrope between policies that a generation ago would have been thought of as far right um, a, a, a neoliberalism that no longer hides the fact that it is high, highly statist. The, the rhetoric of, of neoliberalism the first time around was that it was stripping back the state. Now it, it's uh, it, it's pretty happy to admit to and embrace the idea that this is a very muscular state apparatus. Um, and the other ingredient is the way that Macron got in off the back of the sort of well, what, what might be called the far-right blackmail, um, which was basically invented in France, the idea that you have to vote for this guy because otherwise the far-right will get it. And so the left and the liberals are kind of, you know, blackmailed into holding their nose and voting for a person they don't really approve mm -hmm. of. Um, I mean, I always go back to, to was it 2002, the election where um, France was terrified that uh, the, the Front National um, Marine Le Pen's father, uh, as uh, as was the leader then, was going to get in. And so there was this huge swinging behind Jacques Chirac, who was already a, a pretty tarnished and, and uh, disreputable figure. But he got this, this huge landslide in order to keep the far right out. And Macron in 2017, it was a very similar dynamic. People have got to swing behind Macron or otherwise the daughter Marine Le Pen is going to get in. Um, and, and that sort of set the um, script for Biden's victory over Trump in 2020. And uh, and we're, we're probably going to see yet more variations uh, on it subsequently. Britain, meanwhile, has sort of backed itself into a situation where we've got the two Macrons on offer in, in Rishi Sunak and Keir Starmer. And we can assume that Keir Starmer, if he gets in, will simply uh, normalise all of those illiberal measures that so scandalised liberals when it was Boris Johnson 
doing them. So do you see Macron as, as a sort of figure of the, the future and as a sort of blueprint for a new kind of leadership in the West? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, he's he's a candidate of um, of the at the same time. So uh, in French, mm. he uses this phrase all the time, en même temps, at the same time. And he's he's an odd figure because at the same time, he seems like a very old fashioned kind of, you know, as you say, neoliberal, a bit like Clinton or Blair. But at the same time, he's also innovating. He's not mm. copying them. He's not doing the same thing. As much as I, I love to criticize both Clinton and Blair, uh, they had some social measures. They did have some idea of how they wanted to redistribute the wealth that was that was created under their neoliberal policies. Macron has done none of that. He's, his only social measures were a direct response to the yellow vest. When he was backed into a corner and literally afraid for his own life, uh, he was once... You know, his car was was hit by a projectile, uh, probably, you know, I don't know, a rock or something, um, or maybe a, a coffee cup or something like that by, uh, by a yellow vest protester. And it was very clear that there was a sense of panic at the Elysee Palace where, where he resides after that episode. And, um, and so the, um, uh, no, Macron has uh, only done things that could be conceived of as progressive once when he was backed into a corner and when he thought that he might actually lose his power, if not his life, you know, very dramatic kind of talk coming from, uh, from his, um, his aides at the time. And, um, and, and he has no proposal for the future. Uh, and part of it is, is very clear from his kind of manifesto that he published uh, in 2016. It's a kind of book on, on himself. It's, um, it's, it's a bit tedious to read, but it tells us exactly what he thinks. And to be fair to him, he's quite honest. And, mm. and there's not much, there's maybe a little bit more social in the book than uh, the social measures than, than he's actually done, but there's actually very little. And he's quite honest that you know, this isn't his priority. So it's, it's pretty clear to, to anyone in 2016, is what I argue in the book, if they could be bothered to see that you know, he's not this neutral figure, he's not this, this new Blairite figure, he's not a Clintonite, that what he's proposing is something new and something that is deeply nostalgic about the past, but um, a kind of an, an imagined past, I would say, a past of the... Um, I think the, the the clearest one would probably be the kind of Orleanist restoration of uh, of the mid nineteenth century, mm. where the liberal classes were in power. You know, there's this kind of government of lawyers, as um, as historians describe it, and and this this idea that you know the people who really know about how to run a country are in charge, right? And um, and so to bring it to the twenty first century. I think the uh, the term that Chris Bickerton uses it's quite helpful here, which is the the techno populism, right? Yeah. So he's not an anti populist at all. Actually, he is a populist. It's just that his his target population is the bourgeois bloc, right? So they're um, the people with money, with um, with high levels of education. Uh, that are educated in the in the French grandes écoles, these kinds of private schools that that form people for the highest careers in business, or in Sciences Po, which is the, the highest political science school that uh, 
is a gateway to senior administrative jobs and, and uh, the creme de la creme of these, uh, of these universities is LENA, which is the National Administration School, um, which Macron, of course, went to as many uh, as other French presidents, uh, Hollande, went there. Um, not Sarkozy, actually, but um, uh, so many of the French presidents have been there. Hundreds of, um, of ministers are graduates from that school, even though it's very small, like it's, it's 80 graduates a year, right? It's all postgraduate study. You enter through a competitive exam. Um, so it's you know, very, very selective. And, and so this, this is the technocracy of the future. But mm. the technocracy of the future is not divorced from populism. In fact, and I think this is where um, Bickerton is, is really good on this, is that he shows that they have embraced populism as well, that he is, he is a candidate that speaks freely. Right? He speaks like a true populist. Um, a lot of his sayings, we, we call them the Macronades, so after his name. So this, these sayings that, you know, if you, if you want a job, just cross the streets, right? When he's speaking yeah. to a, a young person who tells him, oh, I can't find a job in my, in my sector. Like I've trained for years and I can't find a job. And he basically tells him like, you know, you, you, can, you can be a waiter at the restaurant over there, right? It doesn't matter what you've trained for. Um, you know, he's filmed in this glorious Elysee Palace where, uh, you know, created by Louis XV or under Louis XV. And it has like this, like Louis XV furniture everywhere, golden. And, you know, you imagine you're kind of in Versailles. I mean, it's in the middle of Paris, but it might as well be Versailles. And he, he's, he's filming himself or he's being filmed by one of his aides. It's a PR stunt. And, you know, it's not, it's not a press conference. And he says, oh, I can't believe we're spending crazy dough on social security. And you're like, okay, right? Like in this ostentatious, luxurious yeah. <laughs> background, and he's just attacking public services. And, 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 and that's part of his image, right? He's an entrepreneur, first and foremost. Um, so his class is, is the class of entrepreneurs. He's a political entrepreneur. His, um, his entire political career is run like a startup. Um, the, the, even the, his political party, I mean, it's changed its name like several times since, but initially it was called Enmarche with an exclamation mm. mark, which Enmarche is E-M, Emmanuel Macron, the same initials. It's not a coincidence. Like uh, for a long time, I suspected it was true. And I finally found evidence um, that, <laughs> that <laughs> it, was in, it was indeed on purpose, right? that it's not a coincidence. But, uh, so I, yeah, I, it's, yeah. he is the future. He is a future. I remember um, back back when it, it was on on Marsh, um, Perry Anderson referring uh, to uh, it as a, a yuppie simulacrum of populist uprising, and I, I think it it can be a little bit difficult to interpret, uh, especially from the anglophone world, where we're used to populism being the discourse against elites. I mean, even on social security right now, Trump, who's to some extent trying to return to his, his 2016 strengths and, and trying to return to that populist idiom, he is denouncing other Republicans for trying to cut social security. So it, 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 we're used to um, a populism that claims to speak for the working class, you know, however mendaciously uh, you think it's being done. What is interesting here is that this is the kind of the, the, the no-nonsense, uh, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, petty bourgeois, Thatcherite common sense, um, which 
I don't know. It's been a bit become a bit difficult to get away with in Britain and America. It does. It. It. I, I'm sort of slightly struggling to imagine a politician pulling that off. How, how does it sound, and who does it appeal to when Macron um, does his "let them eat cake" bit, um, surrounded by all of this, um, you know, beautiful furniture, saying, "Get a job as a waiter." Who does it appeal I, to? Yeah, it sounds terrible, right? It mm-hmm. sounds terrible, but it appeals to the bourgeois bloc. Mm-hmm. Um, so it makes headlines. So first of all, you know, it's this kind of philosophy that there is no such thing as uh, as a bad as bad press. You know, because every time he comes up with one of these macronades, it's a new one that makes the headlines, and for a day or two, everyone is talking about it. Um, so his his enemies, of course, you know, uh, have a have a field day, but um, his friends are very loyal. Yeah. And they're very strongly attached to um, to this vision of France. They do they see France as this kind of retrograde um, country where the workers don't want to ride to work. They they just want to have social benefits or go on strike or whatever. Despite the fact that the French are very poorly unionized, as you, you probably know, it's one of the it's like half the rate of unionization of the UK, for example. Mm. But the French unions are vocal and they're they're well organized, so they um, they do they do create chaos. That's for sure. Um, so so yeah, he has. Um, it doesn't sound good, but he has a very strong backing. And so this this bourgeois bloc is um, is the the people that um, the Labour Party are trying to appeal to at the moment. You know. Mm. Uh, pe- People like us, people like me, people like middle class academics, basically, um, who you know, who are they going to vote for anyway, right? Uh, you know, they they have a sense of um, superiority in the sense that they think they deserve to be where they are. They worked hard, they studied hard, they have a good education, they um, you know uh, achieved everything through merit, and um, and so this idea of um, of, of a meritocracy. Um, of people who have succeeded because they work hard is um, is really the the people that um, uh, that Macron is appealing to, and that speaks to them. You know, all of these Macronades they they speak to to them. And yeah. at the end of the day, you know, I'm a, I'm a consequentialist, right? So you 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 have to look at the consequences of people's actions. And he looked and he got reelected. Right? He got reelected last year after five years in power of making all these comments mutilating and killing people on the streets, um, dismantling the French welfare state, little by little, privatizing companies left and right. He got reelected, so it works. It, it worked well enough to, to earn him a re-election, and that's because a, a part of his electorate is, um, which is strange because it didn't exist you know, six, seven years ago, but a part of his electorate is very loyal to him because it shifted from from the French Labour Party, the Socialist, uh, to him, right? So this kind of this um, this bourgeois bloc that um, that used to vote socialists, um, mm. you know, the kind of we call it the, the gauche caviar, the uh, champagne socialists, as, as you would call them, mm. these um, you know le- left wing intellectuals who drink champagne and, and eat caviar, uh, you know, they're, they flocked to him en masse. Um, and then l- later, from 2019 to 2022, his electorate also shifted much to the right as uh, the right became much more easy with his policies. I think they were a bit afraid that he was going to be too soft, uh, too soft on protests, too soft on on, on people. Um, and actually, when they saw that 
his economic liberalism was also uh, backed up by muscle. They flocked to him en masse. And, and when in the first election, 2017, he hollowed out the socialist votes, um, the, this bourgeois bloc, in the second election in 2022, he hollowed out the, uh, the right-wing votes, um, the, the, the Tories, the French Tories, basically the equivalent to Les Républicains, um, who flocked en masse to him. Um, so his electorate is, um, is now old, retired, and rich. That's, uh, that's the picture of the average Macron electorate with all the nuance in between of the, of the bourgeois bloc that, that still votes for him. Yeah, well, ev everyone likes being told that their class are the real people uh, and uh, populism that has traditionally addressed that rhetoric to the working class and to the petty bourgeoisie is, is now being deployed tremendously effectively by Macron to the the head teachers and the and the media types and and so on. Um, again, ominous um, uh, as a, a prospect to see deployed in other countries. Uh, another sort of a, a dimension of your of your subtitle. You describe how Macron has um, has made the 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 right and the centre right feel feel comfortable with him over the the first term of his presidency and, and and so managed to bring them into the coalition in the election last year um but but what about the far right because it, it this is another kind of intriguing um portent really there's a similar dynamic in in italy where of course the far right is in power but this is a strange new far right that is no longer the enemy of the european union and is no longer um, irreconcilable with its uh, with, with its aims. Uh, um, how do you see the um, the dynamic of uh, of Marine Le Pen uh, and how she's changed the far right in France? Um, how do you see that dynamic in, in relation to to Macron and what he's done? Yeah, so there, Le Pen is Macron's best enemy. Mm. I think that is the ideal opponent for him. And it's, it was very clear when um, they had negotiations just after the, uh, the legislative elections, because Macron has no majority. He has, uh, I mean, in French, we call it a majority government, but it's a bit of a misnomer because he doesn't have a majority in, um, in the National Assembly. He, he has a minority government, effectively. And, um, and so he had talks with the party leaders to see, oh, can I have a coalition? And he had talks with everyone. So he invited Marine Le Pen of the Rassemblement National now. Uh, and when she left his office, you know, photographers were there and taking pictures and big smiles. You know, they had a nice mm. chat. They knew they wouldn't enter a coalition. So, you know, they just had a friendly chat, probably congratulated each other on their electoral successes and campaign and everything else. I mean, the, the Rassemblement National is... Um, is is the largest opposition force in the in the French uh, National Assembly, which is you know quite a feature considering that they've mm. struggled in the past to get one seat, right? And now they're the largest. So there's been a revolution in um, in electoral politics also on that side, right? And and partly it's um, this change is is uh, explained by uh, Macron's party's uh, strategy. So what his party, under his leadership, of course, because everything is EM, right? It's all Emmanuel Macron. Um, and under his leadership, they have basically decided to 
not transfer votes to the left. And this was a strategy in the past because the French electoral system is, is a two-round system. So we have, like in the UK, we have constituencies, but um, there's a second round. So mm. depending on the vote, it's either two or three candidates in the second round. And so it's a slightly more complicated version of our presidential election uh, that's run in, in every single constituency. And um, what happens is, for example, if you had um, if you had Mélenchon, a Mélenchon candidate, La France Insoumise versus a Le Pen candidate, Rassemblement National, in the past, what would happen is the party of the right would say vote for the left because anything but the far right was was the motto. This did not happen last year in 2022. So that means that uh, the Republican Pact, as they called it, so this agreement that parties of the Republic would not let a party of the far right um, uh, in that has broken down. It doesn't exist anymore. It's dead, basically. I think it will be very hard to revive. And partly, I mean, it's, it's uh, sorry, it's, it's um, uh, Emmanuel Macron's strategy, but it's also Le Pen's strategy. So on this, they kind of, they, they worked together in a sense. Uh, and her strategy was to de-demonize her party. So her party was seen to be, you know, uh, have links with neo-Nazis, which it does um, have links with, um, you know, very un, uh, unfathomable people in politics. Uh, but she severed some of those links, not all, but but some of them. And uh, she rebranded the party. She changed the name of the party. She expelled her father from the party because of anti-Semitic comments, etc. So she de-demonized that party and she made it acceptable to, to, vote, to, um, uh, to vote for it, really. Um, and a lot of people have accepted that. You know, forty more than forty percent of the French electorate voted for her in the second round of the presidential elections, and she is the first force of opposition in the French National Assembly. So uh, it 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 has worked to an extent, but I think my analysis is is just a little bit deeper than that. Is that, as you say, the Rassemblement National, the far right, is um, is just an another neoliberal party. It, it mm. has given up on anything that resembles national sovereignty. So there is no talk of Frexit anymore. It used to talk about Frexit. There is no talk about withdrawing from the euro. There is no talk about an independent Banque de France, uh, which would uh, you know, create some, some kind of uh, economic levers with monetary policy. So anything that basically... Uh, yeah, um, uh, I was listening to your uh, to your talk, to your interview with um, with Richard Johnson um, last mm. week, I think, and um, and anything that uh, basically the the left wing Brexit Brexiters have been uh, have been pushing for, which is that sense of national independence of being able to do things that the European Union uh, didn't allow us to do uh, in the EU. Um, then uh, you know that is completely gone, right? She she has she has given up on sovereignty almost entirely. So if there's no sovereignty left, I mean, there's a little bit of national preference. That's basically her economic policy is there'll be a bit of national preference. So we won't leave the EU, we won't leave the euro, we won't leave the eurozone, we won't, we won't have an independent French central bank. But when it comes to you know what kind of car we're going to buy for the police, we'll buy French. Uh, that's it. It's yeah. extremely yeah. boring, right? There's there's absolutely nothing radical in her in her proposals. She's basically Macron in economic terms. 
um, some members of her party are are uh, are definitely on the far right in the old sense as well, but the program of the party is just Macron light. So if there's been a sense of shadow boxing with the far right throughout the Macron years, um, France really has been notable for the fact that the resistances to um, to Macron have, have have been from the ground up. Uh, fr we can talk about Mélenchon, but um, uh, unlike um, the Bernie Sanders project in the States, unlike Corbynism, um, France has been notable for its sort of left populism, not coalescing into a party formation. The, the Yellow Jackets, the Gilets Jaunes, have been... Um, yeah, really, really a, a nationally unique project. It was the subject of your your first book, and obviously they, they play an important part in this one. Um, could, could you give us your, you know, the, uh, the, the <laughs> give us your sort of uh, real take on their significance? Yeah, the the yellow vests were a movement that caught me by surprise. I didn't expect them. I don't think anyone really expected mm -hmm. them. Uh, and they were a novel type of social movement. The French are notorious for their strikes. Uh, we all know that. But uh, for paralyzing the country and, you know, dumping rotten tomatoes on the streets of Brussels to complain about the EU. Yeah, sure, like all of that was known. But um, this kind of bottom-up movement uh, that started over a very simple issue, which is new tax on fuel, right? Um, so it can have a, a kind of uh, a, a Pujadist kind of element, this kind of uh, this revolt against taxation. Mm -hmm. But actually, it soon emerged that this was this was just the, the the straw that broke the camel's back. Really, this tax was not what people were really um, on the on the streets and on the roundabouts of France um, complaining about. So, um, you know, many people have seen the images of um, of cars burning in Paris during the, the Yellow Vest protests. But most of the Yellow Vest protests happen on roundabouts in peripheral France, in the small towns and villages, um, on the edge of industrial estates, in places where uh, you have to take your car to take your kids to school or to go to work or to go shopping, where the, you know, it's, these aren't the very pretty villages that you'll go and visit if you go to France. They're the empty villages, the villages with no businesses in the in the village center. Everything is on the outskirts. Everything is, you know, a, a sort of big, big retail brand that um, that has built this hypermarket. And yeah, I have to drive 20 kilometers uh, to get to it. So this is the reality of of the life in peripheral France um, outside the big cities where there is nice public transport and everything else. There really are no public services or very few public services by, by comparison. And so this is the France of the Yellow Vest and the, the France of the roundabouts. Right? And I think this, this architectural feature of the roundabout was for me what crystallized the movement because most of the protests happened on roundabouts. People occupied mm -hmm. them. They had parties there. They would you know, meet every Saturday for 70 weeks in a row between November 2018 and the first lockdowns really in 2020. When they were forced to stop the movement, uh, and they would they would go and have political discussions, and I think very much for me, what uh, living in the UK, I did go and, and visit the the Yellow Vest, but I didn't have time for any significant fieldwork or research there. Um, but 
what really struck me is that it had the same function that I've seen with Brexit in the UK, which is that it polarized people, but it also politicized them. So a lot of people who would never have talked politics before gathered on the roundabout and talked politics. Right? And they started discovering that they had ideas and that they had opinions and that they felt pretty strongly about certain things. And sometimes they disagreed and, you know, they had debates and conversations. And, and I think that's, that for me was a kind of the, um, the very positive side of both Brexit and the, um, and the Yellow Vest, that it politicized people that weren't political yeah. before. And that's very important in a democracy. And so the movement became a democratic movement is what I uh, argue in the book uh, because it, it became a movement that demanded more democracy because when you become more interested in politics and when you debate politics with your fellow citizens, you want to have that say, you want to make a difference, you want to, to be able to do something. And voting once every five years for a presidential election that's basically decided ahead of time between two candidates you dislike you know, that's not politics. Uh, that's that's just that's just what the oligarchy wants us to do. Uh, what what politics is is making decisions, right? actually taking part and making decisions and putting together a program. and And I still to this day don't know how they did it, but they had a program with demands. It was a completely decentralized movement, but they managed to put together a list of demands that are surprisingly coherent. And, uh, and demand essentially more democracy, more control over economic matters, more help from the state, but also more responsibilities for citizens to participate uh, in politics and decision-making. And so the Yellow Vests are they're a kind of a, a beacon of, of hope for me, even though I criticize hope in the Macron book, but <laughs> that's a, mm -hmm. it's a different story. We, we all need some hope at some, at some level, uh, but they were a beacon of hope for many people who took part in that movement. And I think a lot of people who, who wear yellow vests will be yellow vests forever. I put it to you that, that Macron, uh, far from being the sort of retro figure that he initially seemed, has ended up offering a blueprint for a kind of response to um, the more surprising and and um, and messy kinds of populism that we saw in the the long 2016. I, I wonder if the the gilets jaunes can be seen in a, a similar light. I, I mean, you you say that they're your your beacon of hope. I I, I wonder if um, we've already seen um, protests with with similar with a similar sort of urgency or impulse behind them and with a similar class composition, but perhaps with less um, possibility thus far for that kind of amazing coherence that, that you identify in the Gilets jaunes. Um, basically thinking of the, the kinds of petty bourgeois protests that we've seen across North America and across Europe in response both to COVID and, and, and protests against COVID measures uh, and um, also um, protests against the Ukraine war. Um, neither of these have involved what is conventionally thought of as the left. And in fact, the, um, the left in, in most of those places has, has either had no idea what to make of these protests or has been actively um, revulsed <laughs> uh, from them. Um, but I, I'm just wondering if there's a pattern here that the, 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 uh, the, the Gilets jaunes began, it's very important that they didn't begin with frustrated graduates 
um, complaining about tuition fees and so on. So it's different to Corbyn and Bernie in that respect. It began from fuel prices, something that a, a kind of populism that could include um, uh, the self-employed, could include um, small business owners, people who have been kind of left out of the radical left coalitions of recent years. Um, and yeah, well, I don't know, when you when you follow through those kinds of class interests, you do end up in a, in a pretty radical place, even though those those kinds of movements and those protests that I listed have often had, you know, some, you know, availability to opportunists of the, the far right kind of piggybacking on them or, or trying to control them. Um, I, I, it, were the Gilets Jean a kind of blueprint for other stuff that we've seen? And, and do they kind of offer a, a way of thinking about those kinds of petty bourgeois protest that I listed differently? Yeah, I think they they managed to resist the um, the amalgamation by political parties, and mm. I mean that for both the right and the left. So the two obvious um, people that tried to 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 really uh, ride the coattails of the um, of the movement were uh, Marine Le Pen and Jean Luc Mélenchon. So yeah. these two far right, far left um, are um, are the people that that try to 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 get some. Um, uh, some some support from within the movement, and we see actually that they failed miserably. Right, the movement was really wanted to re remain independent. I mean, it it has lacked organization. It doesn't have you know a, a sort of presence in the French National Assembly. Um, it tried to put together a list for the uh, European elections in 2019, but that was uh, that was unsuccessful. Um, and uh, to an extent, that's uh, both its weakness and its strength. So. It's its weakness because it failed to organize itself into into a real uh, movement that uh, that could organize its own interests. Um, and as you say, you know, it's it wasn't even obvious that these people had the same interests. Mm. Um, but it succeeded in that. Well, first, it was the only force of opposition for the first term of Macron's presidency. So today we saw you know this kind of chanting in the National Assembly. But for five years, the National Assembly was the most boring place on earth. Like nothing was happening there. Macron had a very wide majority. Everything was being like, rushed through. No interesting debates, nothing. So the real force of opposition came from the people. And they were representative of French society. And, and I'm afraid that includes a lot of people who vote for Marine Le Pen as well. So they weren't particularly in favor of her. But when you actually break it down, um, you know, they were very representative. So that means that most of them didn't vote, but the few that voted kind of split almost evenly along along party lines, maybe with a notable exception of, um, you know, there was no one really supporting Macron among the, the yellow mm -hmm. So that, that was the big, the, the, the big kind of um, absent of the, of the yellow vest movement, because they're very much the, um, the reverse of the, of the medal. Uh, Macron is one side, the, the yellow vest are the other. And they really depend on each other in a way, but I wouldn't really see them as um, as as a force to be replicated necessarily. But um, in the Yellow Vest book, I, I do briefly briefly mention the um, what happened in Chile in 2019. So just a year later, mm -hmm. where there was a very mass uh, social movement, uh, popular movement that demanded uh, a new constitution, uh, that demanded a change in um, 
in the in the way that the the Chilean state is organized since it it had been um, it had been organized under Pinochet, uh, the military dictator, and so so that that's the closest analogy if you want. So if you want to see with the type of the, what the yellow vest could have done, pushed to their extreme, look at the example of Chile and the social movement there in uh, in in 2019-2020 that um, basically uh, forced the political elites to to change their strategy, to change the constitution. And uh, even though there were many issues later on around the changing of the constitution, uh, it's not all a a success story by any means. It was also, it, it, it achieved something in that it changed the nature of Chilean democracy. And I think the yellow vest, to to a much smaller extent, but to an extent nonetheless, have changed the nature of French democracy. And when I heard these members of the National Assembly chanting in uh, today uh, to to drown out the speech of the Prime Minister, I was reminded of the yellow vest chants, right? And yeah. and they they are behaving like the yellow vests were behaving. And I think it, it's 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 not a coincidence. They they want to be seen to be representing at least this segment of the French population that has just had enough of uh, political elites just running the country saying, well, you know, we're basically, you know, we've been, we're not born to rule, but we've been trained to rule and you just have to take it. You just have to accept. If if we tell you pensions are unaffordable, you just have to accept it and work longer. That's it. The Macron Regime, the Ideology of the New Right in France, is published by Bristol University Press, uh, and it has a high recommendation. Thanks very much, Charles Devanels, for joining us on The Popular Show. Thank you very much for inviting me. It was a pleasure.